Hello, Whispers, and welcome back to the Residual Whispers podcast. Every week, we explore a new haunted location or paranormal occurrence from around the world. I'm your host, Sky, And I am your co-host, Brian. And this week on episode nine of Residual Whispers, we are not taking you to not one, but two haunted locations. We are taking you to the mysterious Gongium Psychiatric Hospital in Gyeonggi, South Korea, and the historic Mayday Hills Lunatic Asylum in Beechworth, Australia. Yeah, so we're bringing you guys a double feature this week, um, and it's kind of funny how that came to be. So um, originally I knew right away that I wanted to do an asylum this week. Yes. So I started looking for some of the most haunted asylums like around the world. Um, the most I wanted infamous. To do- Yes, and I wanted to do something outside of the United States. And I haven't heard about a lot of asylums outside of the U.S., you know? So I had to do a little bit of research into that. And so as I'm looking it up, the the Gonjaim Psychiatric Hospital came up right away as I began looking into this. And I immediately was like, ooh, yeah, that's the one. That's what we're going to do. And so I decided I'm going to start researching. And I type Gonjaim into Google. And the first thing that comes up is this movie this korean horror film love it which we will talk about um but i was like all right well i got a little bit of time and it says that it's based on the legends around the hospital so i'm gonna go ahead and watch it right so i watched this entire hour and a half korean horror movie in subtitles and i was like all right all right so now i know some of the legends and i'm gonna start looking into some of the history well i searched gonjaim and guys there is literally hardly anything on the internet about this place there, the Which history, isn't shocking mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. So, of course, a lot of the documentation that would have been kept would have been in Korean. Exactly. Um, but at the same time, it just seems anywhere on the internet, there seems to be very little documentation of the history of what went on, even any names about who the <laughs> owner was, nothing about any of the patients and how they were treated. It's very interesting. It's true. And fun fact, the one difference between Sky and I, I love, 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 love me some foreign horror movies or foreign TV shows or anything like that. I absolutely never mind watching something that is in another language with subtitles. Sky is usually a little bit more, she likes it more in English and stuff, but she literally was telling me about this movie and she completely was like, wow. Yeah, um, well, it's not that I don't like, I just don't want to read an entire movie right. when I'm trying to chill. You're, you're like one of, you want to watch a movie to watch a movie. Right, 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 right. right. But usually, I mean, a lot of the Korean and like Japanese horror films and stuff like that, they're impressive. Like, they a lot are of the so time, impressive. They're way scarier than things that we do over here. So That's I why still I love, love them. them so much. Oh yeah. my god. Yeah, I absolutely love it. And of course I watch Squid Game and stuff like that. Love Squid Games. <laughs> love it. Oh man. But yeah, anyway, so once I realized that there was so little information on this, I didn't want to bring you guys a 10 minute episode. So I started looking into another haunted asylum that I had come across and just decided that we would talk a little bit about both. So they're very different, obviously in very different locations, and they have very different stories. So it's going to be interesting. It's kind of of a fun little, we had two smaller stories that, hey, they kind of go together, two different continents, but same kind of trauma. Exactly. Definitely. So Um, Yeah, buckle up, guys, because it's going to be two pretty crazy stories we're bringing to you. So just as a quick trigger warning, this uh, episode will contain details of the mistreatment of patients at a mental health facility, as well as suicide. So if you're uncomfortable with that, um, be prepared or feel free to skip this episode. We totally understand. 
And as always, help is always available to you at the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, which is now conveniently just 811. Yes, thank you, Brian. So let's get started. Um, Deserted mental institutions, whether they quietly closed their doors or were chaotically and unexpectedly abandoned, are often considered some of the most haunted locations in the world. While society has made significant progress toward understanding mental health in the last century, many of these asylums operated under the unfortunate stigma and misunderstanding of mental illness, meaning that their patients were often administered inhumane treatments and lived under poor conditions. This lends to the idea that many who died in these facilities did not do so peacefully and continue to haunt these locations to this day. For this episode, we will be discussing two different mental health institutions whose troubled histories were vastly different from one another, the mysterious Gonjaim Psychiatric Hospital in Gyeonggi, South Korea, and the historic Mayday Hills Lunatic Asylum in Beechworth, Australia. Australia. So we're going to start with Gonjaim. And um, as we said, this is going to be short and sweet and interesting as far as this hospital goes. So from what I could find, Gonjaim Psychiatric Hospital has a very short and mysterious history. Any documentation on this facility is limited and hard to find, lending some to believe that in the short time it was open, it lacked proper administration and was poorly organized. In all honesty, little is known about its history, making it hard to separate fact from legend. It was established in 1982 in a forested area outside of Gyeonggi, South Korea, by a man only mentioned in some sources as a Mr. Hong. The original building was very plain, rectangular in shape, and consisted of three floors with a zigzag-style staircase located on the outside. During the early 1990s, two other buildings were added to the facility as well. So, yeah, I could not find anything about who owned this place, why it opened, but some sources were just like, Mr. Hong. (laughs) That absolutely does not surprise me, though. I mean, especially back in the day, you know, having a quote-unquote mental illness, you know, especially in Asian culture, I'm Mm -hmm. sure brought immense shame or, you know, anything embarrassment. Like, so it's definitely no surprise to me that this place was early just built, kept with as little record as possible about who owned it, who was there, stuff like that. That does not surprise me at all. Yeah, that's a very fair point. So the facility closed um, in either 1995 or 1996, meaning that it was only open for 13 or 14 years. It wow. seems that little is known about the patients that lived here or the way they were treated. Almost immediately after its closure, locals began to speculate about what went on within its walls, giving birth to its many urban legends and ghost stories. Photos of Gonjayim shortly after its closure seemed to show that it was quickly abandoned, with many of the rooms seemingly left exactly as they had been during their use. Dirty mattresses, old clothing, books, and dolls littered the hallways and rooms of the former patients. The outside of the facility was fenced off, and it remained mainly undisturbed except for by local teenagers looking for a thrill, until around 2012. So that year, CNN posted a brief article titled 10 of the Freakiest Places in the World, and Gonjaim made the list. Suddenly, more and more people began to flock to Gonjaim in in hopes of exploring what was supposedly the most haunted place in South Korea. So what are the legends surrounding Gonjaim that made it so appealing to those hoping to count encounter the paranormal within its walls? So that's the very short history. That's about all you can find. <laughs> they opened and they closed. They were only open for 13 or 14 years. And I want to mention as well, um, 
Of course, on the blog, we have some photos for you, residualwhispers.blog. Dot blog. But um, of neither of these locations was I able to find a lot of photos, um, especially ones that differed from one another. They're all very similar of the outside, the building, of a few rooms. Like, there isn't much. Um, so there's not a ton of pictures on the blog this week, but definitely go check them out still. Um, Gonjayim is literally just this, like, white rectangle. And it's like the none of the windows have, like, glass in them. I don't know if they've all been broken out or if it was just like, but they're all just these hollow little openings in the concrete. And like, there's one zigzag staircase on the outside that goes along the three stories and that's it. There's no decorations. There's nothing outside. That's not shocking to me. Yeah. <laughs> Again, a psychiatric ward. It's not usually mm-hmm. so, bursting with decorations. I should say. Yes, that is. Fair. <sighs> um, so, After this 10 of the freakiest places in the world was published and all these people started coming, um, we start to wonder, well, what are the ledges that are causing people to want to visit it in the first place? And why did it even make the list when it was only open for 14 years? That's what I want to know. So so it is said that the patients at Gonjayim began dying under mysterious circumstances. It is believed that they were being murdered by the hospital director who was holding them hostage and either experimenting on or torturing them. Some versions say that the police began investigating after complaints from the families of the victims and the director fled to America to escape punishment. Another version claims that he hung himself inside of the hospital after going insane himself. So the legend perpetuates that what remains of the hospital is haunted by mad doctors, the murderous director, and the tortured patients. So basically, there were mental patients being sent to this place, and legend has it that the dude running the place just literally did whatever he wanted to them, experimented on them, killed them, tortured them, God knows what. Wow. Yeah, and this wasn't the owner, Mr. Hong. Apparently, there's a separate director of the facility. It's not usually the owner who's running the show. Yes, exactly. So this is not Mr. Hong, (laughs) whoever he is. So, um, however, there is literally zero truth to these rumors. The actual closure closure was due to financial issues because the Water Source Protection Act went into effect in South Korea. This would require that a new sewage treatment facility be built on the grounds of the hospital. After a decade of use, the building was also in need of other investments to ensure safe and sanitary conditions. While decisions were being made, the owner, who we can only assume is Mr. Mr. Hong, Hong. (laughs) passed away. And the building was left to his son, who closed the facility and allowed it to fall into disrepair. What really happened to the director, you ask? Well, at the time of Gonjayim's closure, he was alive and well, and he went on to open another mental health institution in South Korea. Oh, wow. So it lends to the question that if Gonjayim was open for such a short time, and we have no documentation of any death at the hospital, was it ever really haunted, or did a wild imagination just get the best of those who visited after his closure? Hmm... Yeah, so there's literally zero truth to any of the legends surrounding this place. Basically, just because it was an asylum, the locals started speculating what was going on inside after it closed. And some of these legends, just like telephone, turned into these stories. And there's literally zero truth to it. So even though it is an asylum, not all abandoned asylums are haunted. I mean... See, and I refuse to, I'm one of those, I refuse to believe otherwise. (laughs) That's how much I hate abandoned asylums and hospitals and stuff. Number two on the list, right behind clowns. 
<laughs> Asylums and hospitals. That's why we're going to spend the night in a freaking jail. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is true. They're very creepy. They have a naturally negative atmosphere. And it seems like a lot of negative spirits would be drawn to these kind of places. So there's still a chance that it was haunted. But Absolutely. with the little documentation, we don't even know that there was a single patient who passed away in its 10 years. Truth. And not to distract from the story, y'all, just to let you guys know, Sky and I are officially one month away from our first ever ghost tour. Oh, yes. We're going to the Colorado uh, Pioneer Museum? No, we're going to the jail, aren't we? The Colorado Prison the Colorado, Colorado Prison, Prison Museum. Museum. Oh That's my what it Lord. is. How did I? The Colorado Prison Museum in Canyon City. <laughs> yes, yeah. in Canyon, Canyon City, City, Colorado. Yes. So we are definitely going to be bringing you guys an episode covering what little spooky encounters we have. The tour literally goes from when, like midnight to four a.m. Uh, eight o'clock to four. Eight p.m. to four a.m. Y'all, yes. we are going to be locked in that little prison museum and we're definitely bringing a evp recorder so we'll see what we can capture for you guys and we'll definitely be telling you all about it we've mentioned it before because we're counting down the days exactly even if i can't remember the name yes so anyway (laughs) now we're going to figure out why this not so haunted asylum is creepy oh so funny yeah so unfortunately though we may never know the truth about gonjayan Because in 2008, a found footage style movie was made inspired by the legends surrounding the hospital called Gonjayim Haunted Asylum. This, yes, very (laughs) straight to the point. (laughs) So, this is the Korean horror movie that I was talking about that is literally the first thing that comes up when you search search Gonjayim. Yes. And so, as I said, I watched the whole movie. It's actually free on YouTube or Amazon Prime. Um, If you want to find the link on our blog, it is there to watch the full movie. And honestly, it was pretty dang good. Like, the acting was decent, and the ending was actually really intense and pretty scary. Okay. Um, so I definitely two things would that I love in a horror watch. movie. Yeah, I definitely say it was it would be worth a watch, and if you like those found footage style movies, it fit the bill perfect. So I'm definitely gonna check that. That's one that I haven't seen yet, so I'm definitely gonna check it out when I get home. Yeah, I think you would like it, especially the ending. So. Heck yeah. So um, after this movie came out, this created an even bigger uptick in the number of people coming to break into the building, some of whom even hurt themselves in the process. After complaints from local residents who were rightfully scared for their safety and local police who were tired of the trespassers, the building was bulldozed later that year, so in 2018. There have been talks about an industrial complex being built in its place, but so far, the place where Gonjayim once stood is now an empty field. Wow. So it's completely gone. It's gone. Wow. Yep, it has been bulldozed. And there's actually maps that you can see when you search for Gonjayim that show like a little overview map of like you can see the town and then the field where Gonjayim once was and it's just empty. Like nothing's been put there. It's just. Ooh, that kind of gives me the chills. Yes, it's very interesting. So um, I'm sure you saw, Bri, this is the outside that I was talking oh, yeah. about. Mm-hmm. It's been graffiti. That staircase is picture, so cool to me. It is pretty cool. Um, But other than that, it's just a big old rectangle. And then these are some of the pictures of like what it looked like when it was first abandoned. The inside of the rooms. Yeah, with everything just still left inside. Which is creepy. And if you guys are into it too, there's a 4K like video that I attached from um, Cinism Media on YouTube. Shout out to them. And it's just a a guy like walking through Gonjayam so you can kind of get a whole look at what it looked like at the time he visited. Hell yeah. Because now you will literally never be able to see it. So, 
That's insane. Yeah, so that's literally it for Gong Jiam. That's all I could find. That's all the information there is. Um, there's videos and stuff of people like walking through there at night, but nothing that I really looked into where anything really crazy happened. So yeah, short and simple on that one. One thing that we would just like to help pass down the story of to keep alive, the yes. memory of it alive. Definitely. And because there's real people who were there and exactly being that we don't even know what they went through or what it was like there. And um, now there's no memorial or anything. It's just a yeah. plain open field. Exactly. So yeah, that's it for Gonjaim in South Korea. Ugh. And now we're going to turn to the Mayday Hills Lunatic Asylum in Beechworth, Australia. So this place is already vastly different in the fact that it was open for 128 years, not 14. So There you go. It's very old. I'm sure some ish went down. Yes, absolutely. So I was able to find a lot more on this one and um, settle in because here we go. So the Mayday Hills Lunatic Asylum in Beechworth, Australia has changed its name several times. At the time of its opening, it was known simply as Beechworth Asylum and a lot of people still refer to it that, as that now. But at the time of its closure, it was known as Mayday Hills Lunatic Asylum. So to keep things simple, that's what we're going to call it in this episode. So the asylum opened in October of 1867, featuring Victorian-style architecture. This place is a lot prettier than Gojai. It is gorgeous. It's really nice. So the facility was established after lobbying by the local municipal council. Before this, patients who were considered mentally ill were confined to the town jail, which is obviously preposterous and unfair. So, yeah, again, um, remember that it was 1867. So that's the time period that we were dealing with. Got it. Um, so, yeah, after some petitioning, because they knew that that, at least they knew that that was kind of effed up. Right. They opened uh, Beechworth, and there's actually several other surrounding asylums that aren't too far away. I think this is in Victoria, Australia. And um, those were all opened around this time because they had all these asylums take, or all these asylums, all these uh, mental patients taking up room in their jails. And so it was an overcrowding problem. Huh. So the hospital was built on a hill in a more remote area because they believed that the higher altitude would help cure the patients and the winds would just carry away their mental illness. I've heard the higher elevation theory before. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting to think about that around this whole time period as well, in America, the gold rush is going on. Right. And so that's the time period. And if you remember when tuberculosis was a big thing, um, literally like people would come up to the higher elevations in the Rocky Mountains and stuff because they thought it was going to cure exactly. their tuberculosis. So something about higher elevation, just back in the day, they thought it was magic. Something about that. Which from two Coloradans is lies. <laughs> <laughs> lies. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. I wonder where they originally got that that idea from. But Insanity. Um, the elevation can be good for you in a lot of ways, but it yeah, can. I don't know. It's We're not, not a cure-all. <laughs> it is definitely not a cure for like people with like breathing problems. So no. <laughs> yeah. So given that Mayday Hills was surrounded by 260 acres of farmland, it was considered self-sustaining and throughout the years would grow to have its own piggery, orchards, kitchen gardens, fields, stables, and barns. So this place was vast, and it was gorgeous, and they basically never had a reason to, to leave. doesn't matter if you were a doctor, a nurse, a patient, everything you had was right there. Everybody basically lived on campus. Exactly. So in hopes of possible rehabilitation and instilling moral values such as responsibility, the patients were given jobs while they were at the facility. The men would work as farm laborers, blacksmiths, tailors, and shoemakers, while the women would be launderers, knitters, and seamstresses, taking care of the domestic chores. 
At the height of its operation, Mayday Hills housed 1,200 residents, which was pretty equally divided between male and female patients. Wow. And as we said, the property and the buildings are massive. There's um, a couple old photos of what Mayday Hills looked like back in the day on the blog, so I recommend checking those out. Here's this one, Brian. Look how huge. It looks like a resort or something. It's massive. Think about it. 1,200 patients, that's almost that was the population of our high school at one point mm-hmm. all four classes combined we were at one point like almost a 1200 yeah. student body yeah that's crazy yep that's but insane to me from what i understand they had the beds for it they were prepared for this wow. and they had a lot of buildings with like a lot of different wings for men and women and certain area of the hospital for like certain types of patients see this is one of those places and time periods that makes me wonder if literally people just said anything was a mental illness to get rid of like if a woman was too strong-willed or wasn't married and all that crap and like I'm very much getting that vibe by how large that exactly. room and board is. Absolutely. Like, You're absolutely right about that. It's totally true. Um, and we'll get into that more. So in the 1880s, recreational areas and activities were also established for the patients. So around 17 years or so or something like that, after they open, they start installing some buildings for recreational stuff. Okay. Um, this included a tennis court, a cricket pavilion, and a theater. There's always a tennis court. Does anyone <laughs> ever actually use the tennis court? <laughs> I like tennis. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, <laughs> additional buildings were constructed to support these activities and the increasing number of patients. So then in 1938, the Wangaratta Ladies Auxiliary formed consisting of women in the local community whose goal was to contribute to the asylum patient's interests and comfort. So at the time, um, so we're fast forwarding a little bit more, we're in the early 1880s, but then in 1938, the community, some of the women actually do become concerned about the patients and want to make sure that they're well taken care of. But we're talking like 60 years later after the place has been opened. Yes. Um, And this is, yeah, 1938. So it's been quite some time already. Um, But this place kind of gives off the vibe that they're trying to make their patients somewhat comfortable. Well, look at it. Anyone would think, oh my gosh, yeah, I'm going to drop off my mentally ill family member here. They're obviously going to be taken care of. Look at this place. like. Yeah, because it was, it was a beautiful place, and they had amenities, and they had their own food, so everybody was well-fed, and, like, it, it definitely comes off as a different situation, but although that it Just seems... Just like Shady Pines. <laughs> so, although it seems that the doctors, nurses, and even the community were trying their best to provide a comfortable experience for the patients, this period of time was probably when the worst and most disturbing treatment practices were being performed behind closed doors. So before 1950, medications for mental illness of any kind did not exist. No. So doctors would opt to restrain their patients in various ways, including straitjackets, shackles, and isolation cages. Sadly, it is unsurprising that they also practiced electroshock treatments. So, okay, this part is really bad. So, like, get prepared because this literally made me sick to my stomach. Um, so at Mayday Hills, they would do mass electroshock treatments. Meaning, mass? Yeah. So this means that they'd herd almost the entire population into a room and shock them all in one go. All How? at the same time. Everyone's suffering together. Just- How? How do they shock them all? So I also watched this documentary about it. And so literally they would bring them into these rooms, like big chunks of the population at a time. 
And they bring them in and they had beds set up for everyone to lay in and they'd hook them all up and they'd just get them all on their electroshock treatments all at once. They would just be shot. So just imagine being a patient there and you're laying there being horribly tortured basically in this bed and all around you are these other people going through the same thing. I mean, is that not what? disgusting? What a weird concept, though. Yes, like, absolutely. Because the fact, if you see most like any horror movie scenes or whatever, you, you see the individual going into be electroshock therapy. Mm-hmm. So I wonder what it does to the mind to like, it's almost like a weird sense of comfort. Yeah, that's actually, I told Michael about this and he actually said the same thing. Like, oh, it's kind of comforting that yeah, like, they're all going through it together. Because but, like, that's what it does. I think that might have been like one of the experiments, maybe. Like, see if people are more susceptible to it, if they have that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. But oh, God. Either way, I think for me, imagining all those people suffering in one room, that would be so Could you imagine? So like, overwhelming. Oh, my And God. I can only imagine that part of the reason for it was, like we said, they had 1,200 patients. And I don't know how much the patients outweighed the doctors and nurses. So was it for them easier for them to just bring in everybody and go, all right, here, everybody, let's get it done. Like, I don't know. Uh, but it's that's really disturbing. Um, so there is also a section of the hospital called the Bull Pit at Mayday Hills. So this was a, war, a ward where aggressive young people between the ages of 18 and 25 were all kept together. Mm. Quote, unquote, aggressive. So anyone that they felt like had a more aggressive attitude was just thrown into this area and left to fend for themselves against all the other quote unquote aggressive kids and people, young adults. (laughs) But what's interesting is so a documentary that's going to be on our blog that was actually really good about this place. I highly recommend watching. It talked about the history. It talked about the haunting itself. um, And they even did a little ghost hunt at the end. It was really good because this one all the way down in Australia, way down under, um, none of our down under <laughs> none of the ghost hunters we know have gone down there. So this documentary was like the best piece of evidence and a good summary of the location as I could find. Definitely go watch it. But in that documentary, um, one of the men working there states that boys as young as six and men as old as 28 were kept in the bullpen. So a very wide range of ages just thrown into one area. Yeah. Some of them were only transferred to Mayday because of jail overcrowding. Mm. So like they didn't even have a mental illness. They were just in there because they were bad people who should have been in jail. Oh my God. And they're in there with six year old little boys. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. It's awful. It's awful to think about what it really must have been like. No, no. So, yeah, you can just imagine some of the terrible things that went on there, given that the patients probably weren't protected from one another. So um, Nathaniel Buchanan, who is a researcher for ghost tours of the asylums around Australia, was quoted as saying in a newspaper, there was no distinction between epilepsy and schizophrenia. In that time, there were four classifications for lunacy, mania, melancholia, dementia, and paranoia. Many of the women in the institutions in the late 1800s were likely to have been suffering from postnatal depression, Hmm. but that was just classified as melancholia. Stupid. Yeah. So basically there was like depression and then being manic, like bipolar and stuff like that. And then dementia, obviously, like we all know what that is. And then paranoia. Those, those were the mental illness. That's what you had. You had one of those four things. And people wonder why we fight so hard for women's rights. 
Yes. Because women were literally diagnosed as crazy for almost like anything until up like 70 years ago maybe yes if we're absolutely lucky. yeah and i found it was so interesting he said a lot of those women would just be suffering from postnatal depression which means they were taken away from their babies oh my god and thrown into these hospitals for years at a time because they were depressed it's infuriating to it me. is it's crazy so um also buchanan discussed how easy it was to be classified as a lunatic during that time period as we were saying an angry friend or family member could easily have put you away at the drop of a dime. A person who was found wandering quote-unquote at large or not under proper care and control could be brought before the justice system and sent to an asylum. So basically, if you were homeless and you were just wandering around, they just would get you off the streets and throw you in the asylum. So That's a weird little blessing in disguise. For homeless people, at least. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, going through electroshock treatments. That yeah, you okay, don't... maybe not that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we don't know really. That's true. I'm not ke- I'm not keeping in mind all the <laughs> BS that they underwent while they were there. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, you could be right, and it could have been a decent place to be for some of them. Maybe some of them were thankful for it. But I would guess, in my opinion, from what I know so far, I would rather be homeless. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. So a prisoner of the crown thought to be a lunatic could be moved from the jail to the asylum quite easily. And later on, from 1915 upward, there were voluntary boarders who were those that requested they be admitted for a mutually agreed period of time. So these were people who did check themselves into the place right? by choice. I can't imagine there was too, too many of them. Um, But for a short period of the hospital's history, it's well known that it only took two signatures to be admitted into the hospital and eight to be released. So as Mr. Oh, Buchanan wow. put it, it was much easier to get in than, than to, to get, get out. out. Absolutely. So as you were saying, like literally a husband who was mad at his wife for some reason or didn't want her around any reason, he could claim that she was a lunatic and need to go to the asylum, sign off on a piece of paper, convince a doctor or a police officer to sign with him, and bam, in they went. There was no testing. There was no checking them out. And that did change later. Just like years later, they changed it to where you had to be examined by a doctor. But originally, just like you were saying, you could just get thrown in there just because somebody was upset with you. Like, that's insane. Yeah. So many of the people who were locked up in these mental institutions during the mid and late 1800s had no real premise for being there. Something as simple as Down syndrome, ADHD, or not being able to speak English could land you an extended stay at Mayday. Oh, my God. So people who were immigrants, they would throw you away just because you couldn't speak English. So Mr. Buchanan also stated that he believes at least one third of patients who entered Mayday Hills did not make it out alive. So on August 17th of 1951, a devastating electrical fire swept through the male wing. An article from the Herald Sun that year read, 400 male patients, many naked, were rescued from Beechworth Asylum today. Minutes before, a fire caused the blazing top story to collapse. Eleven patients escaped into the surrounding mountainous country. Seven were later recaptured, but four, described as not dangerous, are still at large. The ward and areas of the building most affected by the fire would later be demolished. They were all found naked? Yes, it, this was reported in the local newspaper at the time. That's a quote I got directly from their, their article. Um, basically stated that 11 of them like took off, but when they rescued 400 or so men, it says the majority of them were not closed. That is true. And I've seen that for some reason to be very common of asylums and mental hospitals. It seems that for a lot of them who were really like 
and and being in there itself will make you go crazy, right? Oh, being yeah. locked up oh, in there and experiencing yeah. those things and being shocked mm. will make you go crazy. You will go crazy. So a lot of people in there really did need the mental assistance. A lot of them, not all of them, a vast majority were probably all right. But a lot of them who were really mentally ill, they had to be cared for very much by the nurses and doctors. And sometimes if the nurses are understaffed, they can't run around and clothe and feed everybody all on their own. Like, and I don't know if that has something to do with it, but it seems that a lot of asylum history states that a lot of the patients were just naked all the time. Yeah, it's very crazy. So in 1952, an open door policy was established by the mental health authority. So the perimeter wall was demolished in 1955 at Mayday Hills. So there was like a big protective wall to keep the patients from escaping and they had to bring that down. But the interesting thing is they instead put in something that is known as a ha-ha wall. Okay, and I couldn't describe this in my own words, so I used a Wikipedia definition. (laughs) So this is what Wikipedia says about a ha-ha wall. So these ha-has consisted of a trench, one side of which was vertical and faced with stone or bricks, and the other side sloped and turfed. From the inside, the walls presented a tall face to patients, preventing them from escaping, while from the outside, the walls looked low so as not to suggest imprisonment. So basically, it would be like on a hill, and from the hill, you could like see across over it, and and people could see inside, but there's a But then there's a freaking trench right on the other side of it. Yes. So you actually still still have... You're still (laughs) dead. You actually still do have a wall... That's like keeping you from escaping, but from the outside, it looks like you're. It free. looks like nothing. Mm-hmm. Looks like you're free to run if you would like. Wow. So that was really interesting, and that's something pretty unique I found about um, this asylum and other asylums in Australia as well. That's something they would do. It's some maniacal ish. Yeah. So in the 1960s, a nursing training school and adjacent home for the nurses was established at Mayday Hills, and this led to major development in nursing education throughout Australia. In 1962, the mental retardation and mental hospital sections were separated, as it was finally becoming understood that there was distinction between types of mental illnesses and the treatments required. Thank God. So basically, in the early 1960s, they put in this nurse training school as part of the complex. And so there was huge advancements in understanding of the treatments of these things by the nurses. They were being taught better. They were actually receiving training. Right. And so by 1962, they said, wait a minute, we should probably not house all these patients together because they're not all dealing with the same thing. Exactly. And so they separated the hospital and the quote unquote mental retardation section from each other. It took until 1962 for that to happen. Yes. 1962. It's insane to think about, for sure. This hospital has been open for, like, more than 100 years at this point, right? Pretty close. At least close. So, in 1964, several of the wards were renovated, renamed, and reopened as a training center meant to care for more than 200 patients with intellectual disabilities. So, that basically seems that they realized even further in the the next two years after that that intellectual disabilities and learning disabilities were not the same as having mental illness. Being dyslexic did not mean that you, you should be crazy. kept with someone who was, yeah, exactly. So they realized, wow, we got a lot of patients who just have learning disorders. 
Thank God for whatever breakthrough and advancement took place. Like, exactly. <laughs> so that's when they decided that they should separate it even further and that there should be a section for them to be trained correctly to... How to handle know. learning disabilities. Exactly, and- yeah. So they're making a little bit of progress. And in 1977, the hospital is proclaimed under the Mental Health Act in 1959, which was an act of parliament that abolishes the distinction between psychiatric hospitals and regular ones. So basically, the parliament said, like, we don't need to have a separate hospital that's like an asylum where everyone's confined in this one space over some mental illness. Like, they can be in the regular hospital to receive help and so on. At least I I think I understand that's what it was. So this deinstitutionalized mental health patients, and it was realized further that not all mental mental illnesses required confinement. This would lead to many closures of asylums across the world during the 20th century, and also gave the first real definition ever of what mental illness actually was. So they finally put a definition to like mental illness being like an affliction of the mind and finally felt like they even understood it enough to describe what it even was. Um, So that's really interesting. So the hospital was basically called out on that and was told that they were going to have to change their ways. And moving forward to the late 1980s and early 1990s, the development of other treatment options led to less clients at Beechworth and the number of patients began to decline. It's also said that during this time, the unmarked graves of patients who had died within Mayday Hills Asylum were finally given headstones and some semblancy of respect. So at this time, of course, they were just buried in unmarked graves out somewhere. Probably in masses. Yes. And in the 1980s, they finally decided to, like, try to figure out where they had all been buried and give them some headstones. Um, Mm Mm-mm-mm. Yes. Creepy. Very interesting. Kooky spooky. (laughs) In 1992, all intellectual disability clients were removed from the hospital and placed in other forms of accommodation and treatment, as it became clear that a learning disability did not make you insane. So first they tried to separate the people with the intellectual disabilities and like still keep them in there and train them with skills and things like that. And then they realized like, actually, you don't need to be here at all. Like you can go live your life. So in 1993, the hospital had only 130 beds, down from the 1,200 it had held at one time. There was only 20 beds for acute adult patients and more than 70 for geriatric patients. By 1995, the mental hospital it had been known as had basically shut down. So geriatric patients, from what I learned, is that's the study of the treatment of mental illnesses in the elderly. So they had more than 70 plus elderly people who were still there being watched over. And other than that, they only had 20 beds for adults who were still considered like insane or, you know, needing to be in there. Yeah. So it really went down and declined very quickly. But we're already in 93 by this time. And this place is still trying to rock it. So in 1996, the hospital consisted of only two psychogeriatric wards known as Emerald and Amethyst. There was also an acute clinic and external housing at Gilcrest and Mayday Court. So they still had other people who were like living on the land with them as well. But other than that, they had those two geriatric units and that's it. Wow. So that year, the hospital was decommissioned and added to the register of historic buildings. Mayday Hills Lunatic Asylum had closed after 128 years of operation. So they finally said, all right, it's time to close. And one interesting thing, you guys, is even though they were open for such drastically different periods of time, they closed the same year. Wow. Both Gonjayim 
and made it hills Ooh. in 96 yeah wow so that's pretty interesting so it really seems like that's around the time period that understanding of mental health and how it worked really began to take off we Absolutely. started to make some progress thank goodness you really started to see a lot of those quote-unquote mental asylums Shut down. Yeah, but because, it's still um, crazy. Because turns to out think. people weren't crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's still crazy to think that that was until the mid nineties, though. Literally. Around the time that we were born is <laughs> was when, they, when they were shutting down. Yeah. So thank goodness, <laughs> or else we would probably be in there. We got twenty five plus years of knowledge now. <laughs> so currently today, Mayday Hills is owned by two businessmen and leased or sold to tourism and arts based businesses, including frequent ghost tours. The local gardens are open to the public from dawn until dusk. Now, one strange fact I found is that a building to the west of the site built in 1868 as the mortuary for the institution was converted into a chapel known as the Chapel of Resurrection in the 1960s. And today it is used for weddings. So if you'd like, <laughs> so if you'd like to get married in the mortuary no. of a mental asylum, no, please reach out to Mayday Hills. Absolutely not. <laughs> Um, so Brian, here's a picture. This was our the cover photo for it too. So that's the, see, it doesn't help that that place looks that beautiful. It is like, pretty nice. Looking. It's beautiful, and I totally understand why. But no, like <laughs> yeah, and it had these like massive, beautiful gardens full of flowers and all the crops and fruits I and don't orchards. Care. No. And, yeah, so it looked really nice from the outside. Um, but just because of the time period, really, a lot of horrible stuff was going on in the inside. So let's get into the haunting. The actual paranormal. <laughs> so even before Mayday Hills closed in the 1990s, there were frequent reports of ghostly apparitions and strange occurrences. It seems that paranormal activity picked up after the fire in 1951. So two of these stories reported even by the nurses and doctors include that of a deceased male doctor seen wandering the Bristol Wing, which was later demolished due to the fire, and the other story is that of Matron Sharp. So Matron Sharp um, was one of the matrons and nurses that actually worked at the asylum during its time. Okay. And she cared very strongly about her patients and even introduced music therapy into the asylum. Oh, so, so a legend. Was, yeah, she was very revolutionary and seemed to actually really care about taking care of these people. So shout out to, to Matron Sharp. We are now stands. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, unfortunately, she passed away during the time of its operation. And mm. when it was still open, the nurses um, would re report seeing the ghostly figure of the matron sitting with patients during their electroshock treatments. Wow. The room would turn icy cold, but her presence seemed to calm and comfort those who were undergoing the torturous procedure. Wow. Yeah. So these nurses would literally see Matron Sharp, like her ghostly figure, like sitting with these patients who were getting shocked. And it seemed to like help them get through it. Mm -mm -mm. Very interesting. People still see her to this day. They talk about her in that documentary. So go watch it. Since its closure, local residents have also seen the ghost of a man known as Arthur, who was working in the garden for many years. He's said to wear a green woolen jacket, wandering and attending to the gardens as he did when he was alive. So a lot of the other ghosts are inside, but this ghost, Arthur, is seen outside He's the on gardens the frequently. Yes. Okay. 
So there's also the spirit of Jim Kelly, who is the uncle to Ned Kelly. So apparently in Australia, Ned Kelly is a very well-known, infamous bush ranger. And from what I learned, a bush ranger is like someone who goes and commits crimes and then uses the outback of Australia to hide away and like continue to commit their crimes. Oh, uh, so kind of like a cowboy. Like a cowboy in kinda the like Old cowboy. West. But in the Australian bush. Wow, okay. <laughs> exactly. We're brought ranger. to you by the Australian History Society. I don't know if they have that, whatever. <laughs> bush Ranger. So he was also a gang leader, a murderer, and an outlaw. Um, so he's very well known in Australia. And this story has to do with his uncle. Okay. So apparently his uncle, Jim Kelly, burned down his sister-in-law's house. The infamous Ned Kelly, who was still young at that time, so it's his mother's house. Okay. was inside and escaped without injury. Sir Redmond Barry, who would later sentence Ned to death for his crimes in the future, also sentenced his Uncle Jim to 15 years of hard labor when he committed this crime. Mm. So Jim was sent to Mayday Hills to help with its construction. After serving his time, it is said that his mind was quote-unquote broken, so he spent the rest of his days as a patient at the very hospital he helped to build until his death in 1903. He was also buried in an unmarked grave and is said to be one of the spirits haunting the grounds today. So yeah, that one's just a little interesting tidbit. It's tied to a very interesting That's like part. the freaking castle with the prisoners who are digging the well and then oh, like, yeah. just like digging it to be put in it basically. Exactly. Like, yeah. Corbin Castle. Oh. Yeah. That was in our Corbin Castle episode. If you, you haven't, haven't listened to it, you're lame. Go listen to it. <laughs> Go check it out. But yeah, so basically, yeah, same pre- premise. Um, Jim Kelly came and he worked on building this building and then they decided he went insane and he was kept there for the rest of his life. Wow. And he's thought to That's haunt insane. the grounds today. Yeah, so it just really ties into an important part of the Australian me. history. That would drive me damn crazy. Mm-hmm. What? I built this place and now you're going to put me in it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of sad, but it sounds oh. like the family was very into crime. So... Might have got what was coming to him. Definitely not the family you saw at church on Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe burning down the church on Sundays. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> all right. All right. So <laughs> the final and perhaps most gruesome legend at Mayday Hills Asylum is that of a man who disappeared from the hospital. He had been missing for several weeks despite desperate efforts to find him. A dog named Max, who was known to roam the property, was found chewing on a human leg near the entry to the hospital. Horrified, the staff found that the missing man's body was up in a tree where he had apparently tried to escape, and as his body began to decompose, his leg had fallen off and had been found by the dog. So this is also the reason for the stench of death that lingered amongst the hospital grounds, and it's said that the smell of a rotting corpse arises from time to time at the hospital today which is a clear case of some t- sort of residual haunting. Residual. But that one is just awful. Like, he's dis- decomposing up in a tree, and his leg falls off. That is so gross. And Max was like, I found him. Ew. <laughs> that poor dog. Yeah, it's awful. That dog. <laughs> Definitely awful. Um, so then uh, the last thing that we'll mention here is in 2015, a man named Guar Tawari who was the founder of the Indian Paranormal Society, did an investigation at Mayday Hills. And he saw an apparition of a young girl kneeling in an area of the hospital and actually caught it on camera. 
So this photo is on our blog at residualwhispers.blog. Dot blog. This is one that's actually really worth going to look at the blog this time because it's really hard to say if this is a real picture or not. Um, but other photos it of dark claimed figures. To be. Yes, and other photos of dark figures and like shadowy outlines of people have been captured there as well. But Brian, take a look at this. So these photos were apparently only taken seconds apart. The first one where nothing's there. And the second one, there's like this little girl in the background. Oh my lord. My thing is, she isn't see-through. You can very clearly see her outline, and it looks like she's holding something. See, and am I kind of crazy here, or does this look like she? it's like a reflection in a mirror? It, does that look like a mirror? It could be, but this is also because his shadow. Because there's no mirror there. But see, like what I'm talking about, like there's the top frame of the mirror. Yeah, that's fair. It definitely looks like it could be a reflection of something. Because there's nothing like that over here. Yeah, that's true. So go check out this photo, you guys. Um, leave us a comment or send us an email. Check out our Instagram and Facebook page and let us know what you think of this picture. Um, because it's not super convincing. I'm not sold. But the interesting thing is that I wanted to mention as well. So this guy, Gwar Tiwari, apparently he was a lot on a lot of sci-fi shows back in the day, like sci-fi ghost hunting shows. Remember the sci-fi channel? I, I don't know do. if that's still a thing. No, I think it still is. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> but like... Um, yeah, so he used to, like, host a lot of shows on there, and he also founded his own paranormal society, right? But interestingly enough, just, like, I think a few years after this photo was taken, um, Guarv was, like, 32, I believe, and he was found dead in his bathroom under very mysterious circumstances. And I only found this while trying to look into him for the blog post that I was writing. And apparently a lot of people thought that it was due to like spirits being attached to him. And like some of the stories that I saw said that like he had told his girlfriend before he passed away that he felt like he was hearing voices and things like that. And he thought it was like a spirit or something. Some sources say that, but a lot of other sources say that he unfortunately just committed suicide in his bathroom and passed away. He had like a ligature mark around his neck when they found him. Oh wow. Um, so it's really sad and interesting, but, um, yeah, some people think that the ghosts he encountered had something to do with his death. So I mean, that wouldn't be surprising, that's for sure. Yeah, I found that interesting, and I just had to mention that since um, we were showing one of his photos. Um, but yeah, as I said, other dark figures and outlines of people have been captured in the asylum, and I couldn't find any of them themselves, but if you go check out that documentary I keep talking about, at the very bottom of our blog post this week, it's really good, and they show some more of the photos in there. Love it. Um, so if you search for EV EVPs for this location, there's actually a lot that comes up. There's an entire YouTube channel dedicated to evidence captured on the ghost tours at the asylum. And there's a link to that on the blog as well. So I went through a lot of the videos and none of them really stood out to me, mostly due to lack of clarity and low volume. None of them were like super impressive um, that I wanted to play them for you here, but you can definitely hear some like voices, some growls. They've captured a few weird things during the ghost tours. See, if you're catching any kind of unheard voice or growl, then that's enough for me. Right. <laughs> that Absolutely. is enough for me. Yes. So there's uh, definitely some proof that there's many restless and active spirits at Mayday Hills. One seasoned paranormal investigator stated in the documentary that it is the most haunted and active location he's ever investigated. He's been investigating for like 16 years. And he says that the spirits speak constantly. They're constantly capturing EVPs. People are hearing voices. People report being scratched. 
as we can probably guess, a lot of these spirits are very angry because of the <laughs> yeah. things they went through and because they're trapped there. And so a lot of people are scratched and things like that. Um, he even talks about a young ghost boy that they know by the name of Benjamin. And he's one of the people that scratches uh, visitors, but he also will just like run towards people. So that was very creepy. He describes it in the documentary. He actually asks the like guy who's doing all the interviews and stuff. He asks him, have you ever seen that movie Mama? Oh, God, And in their Australian accents, they were so great. And the dude, the main guy from the documentary is like, no, like I haven't seen it before. And so he's like, oh, well, if you ever want to watch another horror movie, just watch Mama. And he's like, you know when the mom like crawls really fast? Oh, like, God. you know, yes. and like, you know, everybody who's listening to this has seen a horror movie with like the crawling ghost that comes right The crawling scare, the crawling jump scare, basically. Uh, yes, absolutely. So apparently there's a spirit of a young boy in the asylum who will do that to people. I don't even know. like my heart would stop yes. like if i saw that real life live and in action happening to me my heart would stop <laughs> like the ghost or demon or whatever it was would have me <laughs> yeah i definitely feel the same way that sounds absolutely terrifying the fact that it's a little boy makes it a lot worse they say he's around like eight years old they think this ghost benjamin is it's always the children's spirits y'all don't trust them. <laughs> and they talked about how he's not very, quote-unquote, well-behaved because he's one of the ones that'll, like, scratch the shit out of people. And in the documentary, they have pictures of, like, the scratches people have So he's inside. a demon. Maybe. Or he's yeah. being controlled. His ghost or whatever is being controlled by a demon because that's what children's spirits do. Yeah, I've actually seen on a lot of ghost shows, and I'm sure a lot of you listening to this know this as well, a lot of the times, like, demons will take the form of a child exactly. to, like, try and win your trust and stuff like yes. that. So it's very possible. But we also know that there was children as young as six years old in this asylum. Which is also ways. why it's like, oh, of course there could be his spirit there. Yes. Ugh. Um, so, y'all, that is it for Gonjayim Psychiatric Hospital and Mayday Hills Lunatic Asylum. As I said, if you really want to see some cool evidence from the asylum, the second one, Mayday Hills, check out that documentary. It's absolutely worth the watch. It's kind of like Australia's ghost adventures, the way they do the whole documentary. It's very awesome. Um, so I didn't include any evidence here, but it's all for there for you in the documentary. It's quite heavy to think about what the patients at asylums around the world would go through during this time period, given that mental illness was so misunderstood and treated more like a crime than a disability. Although a lot of stigma remains around mental health and well-being, we must not take for granted the progress we've made and the methods we've learned to help those who need it. For all the restless souls who are still locked behind the walls of these institutions, we can only hope that they are able to find peace one day. And one thing that they actually mentioned in the documentary as well, like one of the girls that was working there, she said that a big part she, of why she feels like souls get stuck in abandoned asylums and things like that is because they were so used to being locked in right. that they don't know how to get out. Or if they don't in realize they're dead. In that sense of dead, abandonment from your family, you know, a lot of those people were abandoned by their families and just put into asylums. And so, who? It's yeah. like, how do you move on from that? Exactly. And they didn't really get to live, live their lives. But um, just that whole idea of, like, I was locked in and maybe I don't know that I'm dead and I can don't we? know that I can get out. Yeah. yeah. Which is so spooky, you guys. Oof. So thank you so much for listening, as always. 
Um, we'll see you again next week. Please give us five stars. Check out our Facebook and Instagram pages and go follow the blog so you can receive an email every time we make a post. Make sure you also subscribe on Apple Music and Spotify so you get notified of our weekly postings. Definitely. So thank you, everybody. See you next week. I'm your host, Sky, And I am your co-host, Brian. And remember, if it feels like there's somebody there... There probably is. Bye. Adios. Thank you for being a part of the Residual Whispers community. This podcast was created, written, and hosted by Skylar Daniels, co-hosted by Brian Grace, and edited and produced by Michael Liddell. You can check out all evidence, photos, and stories at residualwhispers.blog. You can contact us with your own paranormal stories, comments, or questions by sending an email to residualwhispers at gmail.com. We'd really appreciate it if you followed us on Instagram at residualwhispersblog and help us grow by subscribing to the blog to receive notifications every time we post. We hope you enjoyed listening and we can't wait to share our next paranormal story with you.